I was uh, just so excited. Last week we had a great opportunity to gather together. It was local church conference and celebration, and Pastor Castilla shared with us a year in review. And I don't know about you, but it's just so exciting to be able to look back at all of the things that God has done. And, and even as we sang that song today, just kind of looking back and saying, God has been moving. God has been doing some really cool things, and we believe that he's just got more in the future if we're faithful and we continue to look to him and trust him. So I just, I mean, Christia did an awesome job with the year in review. I'm so excited about what God has been doing and what he's going to do. And I'm excited that today we get to jump back into our series on fact check. We uh, started this series two weeks ago, kind of looking at the common perceptions that people have about faith and the church and Christianity, and just kind of trying to see how would biblical Christianity respond to some of these perceptions. And so two weeks ago, we took the perception that there is no evidence for God's existence. Some people who don't attend church believe there's no reason to because there's no evidence for God. And even some people who regularly attend church feel like it's all just about faith. There's no real evidence for God. And as we looked at not only what the Bible has to say, but as we looked at science and mathematics and philosophy, there is evidence for God's existence. The question is, how compelling do you find that evidence to be, and are you willing to trust and to look deeper into it? Today I want to look at another perception that I think is very common among people who don't regularly attend church, but unlike the first perception, these people often do claim to believe that God is their creator, that Jesus might be a redeemer, and many of them might even say that they trust the words of this book, that it somehow guides their life and faith. But they are under the perception that church attendance is not essential. And for a myriad of reasons that are unique to each individual, they may never attend a church, or maybe only sporadically so. I have spent way too much time over the past two weeks researching for this sermon. And as your note guide may be indication, I have way too many things to try to tell you. Um, but we're going to try this morning to look at just kind of as, as fast as I can give an overview of what the church is, what the church isn't, and kind of why it maybe matters in the life of a believer. Buckle up your seatbelts. If you want to take pens you're gonna, or take notes, you're going to have to write fast. There's a lot there, and you're going to have to write small today. Sorry? Hopefully this is fun and enjoyable for more than just me today. All right, now the Bible uses a number of terms to describe what the church is and to help us understand what the church is. One of the first terms that we need to understand is that the church is to be a sacred assembly. It's, it's holy, it's different, it's something that's set apart, and it is a, a gathered assembly together. The most common word in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, for the word church is ekklesia. It looks a little bit like this in the Greek, and so if you were to look into the Greek New Testament over and over again, you would see the word ekklesia. And so when we translate the word church, most of the time in your English translation, if you see church and you were to go back and look at a Greek translation, it would have the word ekklesia. This is the word that Jesus himself uses when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, all these flowery things. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. 
you're the Messiah. You're the one that all the prophets have been telling us about and we've been looking for. And Jesus responds to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I tell you that you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome my church. Jesus uses the word, my ecclesia. I am building my church. Now, the word ecclesia is actually a compound word. It's technically two Greek words put together, the word ek and the word kaleo. The word ek means to come out or from, and the word kaleo means to call. So literally what this group is is the called out ones, those who have been called out. Now, you may know, kind of some Bible history for you, that the New Testament is largely written in Greek. The Old Testament was largely originally written in Hebrew. But at the time of Jesus, the common uh, language of the Roman Empire was Greek, and so they had translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And it's a translation known as the Septuagint. And if you go back into the Septuagint over and over again, you find this word, iglesia, meaning um, we're talking about the sacred assembly of the nation of Israel. This is the gathering of God's people, the the entire group or the assembled group of God's people who represented the nation of Israel. And what's important about the sacred assembly of the nation of Israel is that they were the called out ones. They were the sacred assembly. Out of all of the nations of the world, God said, I have a unique relationship with Israel. So out of everybody else, these are the ones that I have called out to be mine. Now, if you know history, you'd know that they spent a significant amount of time, 400 years, living in slavery to Egypt. It formed a part of their cultural identity as to who they were. And God raised up a deliverer. And out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, God called out the nation of Israel. And he established with them his covenant that he would have a covenantal relationship with this called-out group of people. And all of this is a foreshadowing of the word church in the New Testament. What does it mean to be a part of God's church? It means to be a part of the group of people who have been called out. From the rest of the world, from everybody who exists, this is a group of people that there's something unique about them. This is the group of people that much like the nation of Israel was called out of bondage to slavery, this group of people, the church, has been called out of bondage to slavery in sin. And much like God had a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, this group of people, the church, is a group with whom Jesus died to establish a new covenant, saying that I want you to have a relationship with me. This is the sacred assembly of God's called out ones, the church. One of the second most common ideas of what it means to be the church in Scripture is a collection of believers. The second most used term that we would find in the New Testament is the word koinonia, which literally means fellowship. This is the word that is used when the very first Christians on the day of Pentecost began to gather together regularly with one another. And it says this in Acts 2.42, it says, "...they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the word koinonia, this collection of believers, it literally means an interconnected community, a partnership, an association, a a group of people who share and participate in life together. Simply, it's a collection of believers 
who do life together. They're one unified group of people. They're of one mind. They're of one heart. They're of one identity. They, they share purpose and relationships. And in Acts 2, even, they share resources with one another. This is a group of people that has joined their lives by choice together under the kingdom of who God is calling them to be. And this one's a mouthful, but we could say that the church is a gathering of holistic kingdom-building disciples. This one, as you may have guessed, doesn't necessarily have a Greek word behind it, but I feel like this phrase is a great way of describing what the church is from a biblical perspective. The Gospel of Matthew records that the resurrected Jesus gathers together with his disciples in a mountain in Galilee. And his final words in the Gospel of Matthew, it says this, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was the Christ. He was the promised Messiah, the, the king who was going to bring God's kingdom to earth. And Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible for his followers to experience that kingdom. They could be redeemed. So that even though their lives still physically were in the kingdoms of this world, their spirit and soul was redeemed by God. They didn't live any longer according to the law that brings death, but they lived according to the law of the spirit. They were given the power to have communion with God through the work of Jesus Christ. But the work of God's kingdom wasn't limited to the first group of apostles who followed Jesus during his time on earth. He said, this is what I want for you guys. I have come into this world. I've, I've left heaven to come into this world for one purpose, to bring the kingdom of God into your life so that it is a now and not yet reality, so that right now you experience the kingdom of God, but you wait a not yet reality when it will come in all of its fullness. And here's the deal. I came to you, and I'm giving you all authority which has been given to me. And I tell you, go make disciples of all nations. You've been following me around. You've been learning everything that I had to say, all of the, the teachings that I have. And now I want you to take those teachings, and I want you to go everywhere you can possibly go to people of all nations. I want you to teach them what I have to say. I want you to share with them the hope that the kingdom of God is here and it is still coming in all of its fullness. You experience now and today the first fruits of the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 23. But we who are his followers are called to extend that kingdom into the lives of others as well. And Jesus' kingdom gospel is holistic. Sometimes we think of the kingdom as only about our personal salvation, like Jesus saved me so I didn't have to go to the bad place and I could end up going to the good place. But Jesus' kingdom gospel is a holistic gospel that says everything that I created in the very beginning, I created what? What does he say every time? God created light and he saw the light and it was good. Everything that God creates in his world, he creates good. 
And Romans tells us that all of creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. So what God is redeeming is not only that we get the good place and not just the bad place, but literally all of creation is to be redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see this over and over and over and over again in the life of Jesus. He models for his disciples how life should look, what the gospel is like. It's it's caring for the poor and orphans and widows. It's offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It's visiting those who are in prison. It's caring for and stewarding the created order which we are a part of. It is partnership with the Lamb who Revelation says is making all things new. This is the work of the church. It's a group of people who gather together. They're they're disciples who follow Jesus and they live lives that are intentionally bringing the kingdom that has come into their lives, extending that kingdom in every way, shape, and form that they can. Bringing holistic redemption into our world that his kingdom may come, that his will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, that as much as possible, as much as God enables you, that the line between heaven and earth is blurry because of his disciples and their presence in this world. There are many other biblical expressions of, of the church, just to touch on a couple of them very quickly in rapid form. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ the group of people that Jesus has called to be his, that he loves and cherishes, protects and provides for and joins himself to. The church is the body of Christ, those who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to carry out the function of Christ's presence in our world as a united and collective whole. The church is not the place we go to be served, but it's the place we serve. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, It's the gathering of God's people where his Holy Spirit dwells. You may or may not remember in our series in 1 Corinthians, we talked about this, that Paul says, y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not you just as an individual, but y'all as you gather together, you, plural, when you gather, your gathering, that togetherness that you have is where the Holy Spirit resides. Y'all are the temple, the kingdom of God. Those who recognize the authority of Jesus as the only true king of kings, the sovereign over all creation, the alpha and the omega, the lamb who sits on the throne. The church is the kingdom of God. So let's talk for a few minutes about what the church is not. If this is what the church is biblically, what is the church not? First and foremost, we would say the church is not focused on an individual. God works among his people from Genesis to Revelation. As you read the story of Scripture from page 1 to the very, very end of it, God is working in his people, plural. The chief enemy of human beings is not Satan, (laughs) It's not a little red imp. It's not a snake. The chief enemy of human beings is sin. That thing in our own lives that says, 
I can know what God knows. I can define right and wrong. Sin is that thing that separates us from God. But if you remember the garden story, separation from God is not the only thing that happens in the fall. But as soon as Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree, they hide among the trees of the garden. Not only from God, but also from each other. And we read in that story how the ground itself is cursed, how humanity is separated from God, from creation, but humanity is separated from each other. In the New Testament, God's presence in the Holy Spirit, again, dwells in the gathering of God's people, in the y'all. And this is so important because this is redemption of creation. When God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In Genesis 1.27, this relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity concept that's kind of mind-blowing for us to wrap our heads around, this God says, we who are relational will create human beings, and they to bear our image will be male and female. There's something about them coming together that represents who we are. And so at the story when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he rises again and his redemption is offered to his people, this circles back all the way to the beginning of creation to say relationship matters. This is how I made people. I made them for relationship. God is obsessed with what he created as his image bearers this is why as you read so often throughout the old testament story you see over and over and over again god is furious when people make an idol and they fashion something to say this is what god looks like and god sits back and says i've already made something that looks like me I've already put something in your midst that you should be able to look at and you should be able to see me. Every human being is a reflection of who God is. When God and Jesus Christ redeems human beings and they gather together, he is there in their midst. He promises this, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 18. He says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. This is what it means to be the church. It's, it's not focused on an individual. The church is not a place for you as an individual to have your spiritual desires met, or you might say your spiritual needs, because it's not fundamentally about you as an individually. Similar, you on your own are lacking all that Christ wants for you to experience in your spiritual journey. You are missing the fullness of the redemptive work of Christ which restores us in relationships with one another. The relationships that sin severs, Christ redeems. Now, this isn't to say that Christ condemns those who because of age or illness or imprisonment or some other reason are unable to attend a gathering of Christians. Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this is to say that the redemptive work of Christ intends far more than for us to do our spiritual journey alone. If you would say my faith is a private matter, you grossly misunderstand the work of Jesus in your life and what he intends for you as one of his followers. The church is not focused on an individual. 
The church is also not a building. Numerous times in our uh, uh, history, we've used the Bible Project team to kind of help us understand a, a little bit of a difficult concept. And so I thought the Bible Project team just did an excellent job explaining what the temple is and how that relates to the church. And I wanted to show that video to you this morning. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah. The building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. 
After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become many temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. The church is not about a physical structure. We properly call this the church building, but the word church functions more like an adjective than it does a noun. The structure is just a building. When we gather here at this building as the sacred assembly of God's people, there's a church here. What makes it a church is the people, not the structure. Similarly, it's through our connections with people and not in a building or a location or a place where we meet with God. Because Jesus has redeemed humanity through his work and his life, death, and resurrection, it is in redeemed human beings where we are best able to connect with God's Holy Spirit. This is why, biblically, theologically speaking, you might be able to go away by yourself, and I would encourage you, spend time, go away by yourself, go to the beach, go to a forest, spend time alone with God. It is a wonderful way to have an intimate moment with the Lord, but it's never church. It's never what God intends, because the unique place where God's spirit dwells, where his presence dwells, is not a building, and it's not just in nature, but it's in the place where he created for his image to rest. It's in gathering together with other human beings. So you are never so connected to God's presence as you are when you intentionally recognize and connect with the presence of God within other redeemed followers of Jesus Christ. The church is not a building, and nor is the church a weekly event. Now, this could get really complicated really fast, but we need to at least kind of mention some biblical truths and walk through some history to try to understand this together. God never commanded his people to gather once a week for a religious service. If you look through the Old Testament, there were times when the whole nation of Israel gathered together for a sacred assembly. But the work of the temple, the, the religious work that happened, the sacrifices for the people, was daily work carried on by the priests. It wasn't particularly a spectator event that other people would go and watch. There were various reasons as an ancient Jew why you might bring a sacrifice to the temple, but it wasn't a once-a-week thing. There were three times a year when all Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem for a sacred festival. And once every seven days, there was something in ancient Judaism called the Sabbath. There was a day that God said, on the Sabbath, stop. <laughs> the word Sabbath literally means stop. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, stop. And God says every seven days to rest. And the early Jewish celebration of Sabbath was focused on rest. 
on stopping from the work that they were doing. And most of the responsibility for religious instruction and worship was primarily carried out in homes by families and parents. Over time, religious instruction began to be more important at the temple as a part of uh, Jewish life. But parents were the ones initially tasked with teaching the Torah. So what happens as you go through Jewish history is you find that God sets up his temple and he sets up a time for people to come to his temple and to worship and he sets up the, the home as the place where people should grow and they should learn and they should do life together as one community, as one nation, but the nation is corrupt. They fall away from God and they begin to worship every other form of God. They look just like the nations around them and God allows his people to be carried off into exile. In the year 587 BC, the nation of Judah is carried off into exile by Babylon and the Jerusalem temple is completely destroyed. And biblical historians don't know, uh, church historians don't know exactly when or who or how this started, but when the temple was destroyed and God's people had been carried off into exile, they suddenly began to have light bulbs turn off in their heads and say, we've gone astray. We haven't worshipped God. We have forsaken His Word, that for them, primarily the Torah. We have not understood God's law in our lives. And somewhere in exile, they began to form houses of prayer. Jews would call them a synagogue. And at these synagogues, they would often have a house of study, a bet midrash. And they would gather together to pray and to study God's Word. And you might guess the day that they picked to prioritize gathering together to pray and study God's word was the Sabbath. And so the Jews began in exile to gather on the Sabbath for prayer and for study. And when the nation came back into the land at the time of Jesus, you find this rebuilt temple, which was once a very small structure, now has these elaborate courts built around it. And there's all kinds of rooms for training and for learning and for growing and for studying the deep intricacies of God's word. At the time of Jesus, every place that had a Jewish community throughout the world had a synagogue where Jews would gather. And it became even more important for Jews following A.D. 70 when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed and remains destroyed today. The Jewish synagogue service forms the backdrop for most of what we today think of when we think of as a church service. In fact, the first Christians, when they gathered together, they would gather together and they would celebrate, and there was something sacred about the Sabbath for them, and that was a, a sacred time. But over time, they began to honor the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day which Jesus was resurrected as well, initially alongside of a Sabbath and a Lord's Day celebration, and eventually, as Christians wanted to distinguish themselves from Jews and what they taught, they began to celebrate only on the Lord's Day. A weekly gathering of Christians for religious service was never expressly commanded, though, in either the Old Testament or the New. What Jesus and the New Testament writers called the church had more to do with the entire collection of believers doing life together and seeking the holistic redemption of the gospel in lives, families, communities, and the world. It's more of what we might call the Big C Church. 
But while the church is not a weekly event, I believe that our weekly gathering is the launching point for how we live out the biblical mandates of church. The first Christians didn't meet weekly. They met daily. (laughs) The work of the Old Testament temple wasn't a weekly event. It was a daily event with special focus at certain festivals and certain times of the year. So a biblical understanding of the church doesn't mean we would meet less often than once a week. It means we would meet more frequently. That we would find ways to do life in more of an interconnected way with this group of people. That it wouldn't just be a once a week event where we gather together and maybe go, hello, as we grab our coffee and head for our pew in the sanctuary. The weekly religious service, though, much like the synagogue service, I believe is an adequate starting point for building real, authentic, kingdom-minded relationships. Over and over again, the things that we do when we gather together are mandated by Scripture. Scripture tells us to do the things that we do on this weekly gathering, and they're important thoughts. Scripture tells us to pray. In Matthew 18, 19, Jesus says, Again, truly I tell you, if two or three of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus says there's something about my people getting together in prayer, where there's a powerful thing that happens there. God tells us that there's something about worship in song, that God's presence is uniquely with us when God's people gather to sing. Psalm 22, 3 says, But you are holy, God, you who inhabit the praises of Israel. You inhabit the praises of your people that when we gather and we sing together, God's presence and his power is with us in a unique way. Teaching is an important part of what it means to be the church. The first Christians were devoted to learning from the apostles. Simply says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching saying, I've got to learn more. Uh, you, you have more understanding of, of theology and faith. You have more life. You've walked this journey longer than me. Teach me, help me to know what God wants from me and how he wants me to live my life. Sacraments are an important part of, of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And also, Jesus says to those disciples in the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And when you make those disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see in the New Testament these mandates for the church to participate in sacramental community where we share together a meal that reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and where we have this method by which those who proclaim to be disciples of Jesus have a sign to say, I have been buried with Christ and raised again to new life. I've been washed clean. I am joining my life to this fellowship, this ecclesia these called out ones in this koinonia. There's something biblically mandated about our giving. 
Paul will tell the uh, Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 that on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Some people think that this is part of why Christians meet on the first day because Paul said to take an offering on the first day of the week. Personally, I believe this is just because it's a first fruits offering. Everything that we give to the Lord should be given first. It's not about waiting till the end of the week and saying, well, what do I have left over? Maybe I'll give that. But it's about saying the very first things that God has given me before I've gone into my week, I'm going to give back to the Lord. But there's something about gathering together as God's people and giving in our worship of him. And there's something very important about gathering. This is the key verse for all of this. I, I, I've given your Bibles a workout if you flip to every place where I was, but the key verse I put on the top and the one that some of you are wondering, when on earth is he going to get there? Is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. Some people are in the habit of doing that, but let's encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There's something important about God's people gathering together. What Jesus had in mind for the church was something so much more and deeper, something more frequent and about greater interconnected living than just a weekly religious service. But our weekly gatherings are a starting point for the relationships and the practices that the Bible mandates that we have. It's largely borrowed from the practices of exiled Jews in the 6th century B.C., we should never equate absence from the church service with a loss of justification in Christ. But to willfully reject all forms of gathering together intentionally with other believers to live out the biblical mandate of church is at least unhealthy as a rejection of Christ's invitation to participate in the kingdom that he came to establish on earth. There's no one exact way that the church has to look. In fact, what you could properly call church is probably much, much broader than most of us ever think of. But it always involves intentionally gathering together with other believers. It is never an individual experience. Localized expressions of church and weekly religious services will almost always be flawed and fall short of all that Christ had in mind for his church but they can be a very effective starting place, launching us towards discovery of the life of togetherness that God has for his people. There's a perception among many people that it doesn't really matter if we go to church, but when we check the facts against biblical truths, I'd say it has to fall into the category of mostly untrue. The church is not about individuals. It's not a building and it's not even really about a weekly event or one particular way of doing church. But it is the sacred assembly of those called out by Christ. It's a collection of believers who do life together as one. It's a gathering of holistic kingdom-building disciples. We're the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of God. Let me pray for you. 
Dear Jesus, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would bless this congregation. I hope I have not bored them to sleep with so much information about what the church is. God, the truth is you love the church. Ephesians tells us you love her so much that you died on the cross for her. So God, help us to see the church and help us to have a bigger, more biblical, broader view of exactly what that means, but help us to love her like you loved her, Jesus. Help us to desire the gathering together with other believers. Give us the boldness and the courage to open our lives up, to share stories, to share requests for prayer, to do life together. Help us to realize that we have been called out. We're different from the rest of the world. You've called us to live apart from sin, and you've formed a covenant relationship with your church, Jesus. God, I pray that you would bless your people today. I pray that you would bless this church, and I pray that you would bless your church worldwide. God, help us to be a more accurate reflection of what you desire for us, that your kingdom may come, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the line between your kingdom and this world would look a lot more blurry because of your disciples on mission for your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. We do want to let you know you have the opportunity to participate in worship through your giving this morning, through the giving of your tithes and offerings. There are plates available as you exit the sanctuary uh, in either rec- direction today. You can also give online at oakridgewc.com give. You can use your bank's online bill pay, snail mail checks to the church. You can also give online on Facebook uh, as of a recent thing. And so if you are watching us on Facebook this morning and you'd like to give there, you can donate there as well. We want to pray over our offerings this morning. Jesus, we thank you for how you provide for us in our lives. We thank you for your goodness and your provision. And this morning, we give back to you a portion of what you have entrusted to us and ask, Lord Jesus, that you would bless it to the furthering of your kingdom, that others might have the opportunity to have the hope of Jesus in their life, that you would help us, Lord, as your church to represent your kingdom here on earth that you would give wisdom to the leadership of our church, and Lord, that you would bless those who give and that which is given. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have a wonderful week. We'd love to see you back uh, next week as we continue our series on Fact Check. Go with God and have a great week. God bless.